This is Sam. This is Barry. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on Southpaw, we have illustrator, cartoonist, and writer, Barry Deutsch. Hi, Barry. Hi, how are you? So before we get into your political cartoons, let's start with your artist-writer origin story. And actually, we're recording out of your home in Portland, Oregon. So also maybe then how you ended up in Portland, Oregon. Um, I'm not sure I have an origin story. <laughs> um, I've always been pretty obsessed with comics when i was a kid if my parents wanted to punish me for something they didn't ground me uh they would take away my batman and superman collections and uh, not give them back until my punishment was over so then your love of drawing started with just comic books mm-hmm. it's always been comics for me right off the bat then what is the difference between comics and cartooning uh Comics are the physical printed item that you hold in your hand. Cartooning is what you do to make a comic. So is the storytelling then and the artwork the same in you know, what you would see in classical newspapers versus what you would see in Batman? There's differences. It's like film. Um, you know, whether you're watching uh, the latest Marvel Universe uh, movie or you're watching... Um, I don't know, uh, you know, an art film in an art house. They're both movies, but both of them use probably a bunch of different techniques to their storytelling. So it's the same with comics. Um, an old crazy cat cartoon from the 1920s um, or a comic book today, they're going to use some different techniques because they're drawing for different purposes, but they're both comics. Then what is the path to becoming a cartoonist or a comic book artist slash writer? Did you have to go to art school? Did you have to take special classes even before then? Well, um, the, the most important part of the path is spending lots and lots of time drawing comic books. Um, a lot of successful cartoonists uh, never had any formal training. Um, and I include some of the best cartoonists in the world. In my case, I did go to the School of Visual Arts in New York City for a year. I was very privileged that I was able to take a class from Will Eisner, uh, but that's the extent of my formal training. Now, for listeners who don't know, who is Will Eisner? Will Eisner was one of the uh, most important American cartoonists uh, around World War II. I guess just before World War II, he created a now obscure feature called The Spirit, which were like eight-page adventure comics that were distributed with newspapers. And The Spirit was incredibly innovative um, in terms of the storytelling techniques that he innovated. And then 
Uh, he went and worked uh, for the army and as a prior contractor for decades. And then when he retired from that, he went back into comics and he wrote and drew what is widely considered the first graphic novel, A Contract with God, and a number of other really excellent graphic novels. Also of interest to me, um, because I'm Jewish and I'm involved with Jewish comics, uh, he was really the first uh, American cartoonist I know of to do comics in which which were about openly clearly Jewish characters mm. um not rather than like you know Ben Grimm the thing in Fantastic Four is Jewish but you could uh read a hundred issues of the Fantastic Four and never know that um whereas with Eisner's comics it was really in many of them an important part of the narrative and now one of the most prestigious awards in cartooning is named after him, right? Right. The most pre prestigious, okay. really, the Eisner Award. Okay. And were you nominated for an Eisner? Yes. The My first graphic novel, Hereville, How Mirka Got Her Sword, uh, was nominated for the Eisner for uh, Best Graphic Novel for Young People, I think, something like that. Um, I was up against Raina Teljamir for Smile, so there was zero chance I would win, <laughs> but it really was amazing just to be nominated. So we'll get into that comic book in a second, but one of the things that a lot of your current fans know you for is the politics in your current cartoon. So what informed your political consciousness? At what point did it start? Uh, I think I've always been political. Um, like... I remember in high school, I like organized anti-Reagan uh, <laughs> actions in our cafeteria. You know, we pasted up flyers on the wall and uh, the right wing students tore the flyers down. And to me, that seemed like a big deal. This is censorship. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I don't know when it started. Uh, my uh, my parents were. Uh, political. My mom still is. Um, I remember being a kid too small to understand what was going on, uh, but being taken to like political planning uh, meetings, which took place in these kind of grotty back rooms. And me and my sister would crawl around under the tables while the adults had important talk. And, you know, I mean, practically everyone in my family is liberal or leftist, I mean, which is pretty typical for a mostly East Coast Jewish family. So then I went to Oberlin College initially, and of course, uh, that's probably when my political ideas became more sophisticated uh, insofar as they are, but it remained left. And I guess, I mean, my politics have changed over the years. I feel like I've mellowed out. I mean, of course, I'm specifically angry right now because, you know, Trump is president, the world is on fire, et cetera, et cetera. But generally, I, I'm feeling it's important to be kind and uh, to try and be nice, even the people I disagree with. And that seems a little bit out of fashion in much of the left these days. Okay. Now, you said, as far as you can remember back, you were always political. Were you always drawing political cartoons then? I mean, not always, but I, I mean, I drew... The flyers I mentioned at my little high school anti-Reagan thing were drawn by me, and uh, so those were political cartoons. So I've done political cartoons intermittently forever, but it's only, only occasionally have I been drawing them frequently. 
did it start post-Trump where you started doing more volume of this type of work? Uh, not really. Well, it goes up and down. There was a period, I guess, in the early 2000s, maybe, where I was drawing a cartoon a week, which is what I'm doing now. And that was like my first attempt to make a living as a political cartoonist. But by then, the newspapers were dying. Uh, there were newspapers going out of business every month. And every time a newspaper went out of business, that was a political cartoonist who no longer had a job, who was way more experienced and skillful than me. So it was not a good time for new cartoonists to try and break into the industry. And you can really see that if you go to any gathering of political cartoonists now, most of us are old. It is not a field that's full of young people. Um, but then- so economically, it just wasn't a good time to be a political cartoonist. And I'd always loved uh, comic books for storytelling as well. So when I moved into um, doing children's graphic novels, it was amazing to me because suddenly I was in an industry that was alive, that was growing, where people actually were interested in your work and going, wow, could this work for us? Could we publish this? Instead of going, uh, we just laid off 20 political cartoonists. We don't need another one. Um, so that was awesome. And what brought me back into political cartoons, uh, something I could do frequently, um, because it's not, you know, one would like to think it's all about the art, but it's all about the overlap between what art could I do that I want to do and what could I actually be paid for doing? Because you got to get paid. You got to live. Um, what changed things for me was Patreon. Uh, Patreon exists. And that means that I no longer need a newspaper to make a living doing political cartoons. Um, and not just for me, for cartooning in general, the existence of crowdfunding, not just Patreon, but Kickstarter and some lesser known companies has been revolutionary. It's, it's allowed whole new economic models of how to make a living as a cartoonist to emerge. And let me be clear, it still sucks <laughs> because anytime you're trying to make a living as an artist, it sucks uh, because there's always going to be hundreds of people who want to do what you're doing. Competition is hard. Getting the public to even notice what you're doing, it's always hard. But that's always how it has been for artists. And uh, with Patreon, Kickstarter, and crowdfunding, uh, it's provided a another route to be a cartoonist and one where you avoid a lot of the gatekeepers. The big gatekeeper for comics now is can you break through to the public? And when you do, are they going to want what you're doing? Um, and so that's still a barrier, but on the other hand, you're not facing with editors and publishers and things like that. So it's without, without crowdfunding, we'd have so many less comics today. But if you work for a newspaper and did cartoons for a newspaper or comics, were you able to sustain a living in the past? Like were cartoonists able to make a living doing that? It wasn't just, they could make a living. Cartoonists used to be able to get rich. <laughs> um, you know, the newspaper cartoons, if you're going back to the 20s, 30s, and 40s, newspaper cartoons were huge. Cartoonists who were successful back then were celebrities, and, uh, and they did get wealthy. And uh, if you think about it, there was so – when 
comic strips were started out in these papers, there was so little competition for visual storytelling entertainment. There were the movies, but you had to actually go to a movie theater for that. Um, it wouldn't be something that you'd have in your home on a daily basis. And then over time, television came and got huge, and that shrunk the audience for comics a little. And then after television, VCRs came, people could not watch movies at home. That was a big change. Um, and then uh, and then we got video games and the internet, and that's completely remade all of society uh, in many ways for the better. But one of the bad things is that's yet more competition uh, for cartoonists. And it makes a huge difference. Uh, in the heyday of the Shazam comic book, also called the Captain Marvel comic book back then, um, they were selling a million copies a week. Uh, that's and in in a much smaller population than we have now. They sold a million books a week. That's unimaginable. Right now, if a Marvel comic book can sell seventy thousand copies a month, that is a huge hit. Um, so comics have shrunk a lot, but once upon a time, it was a very real and respectable living. And just for young listeners, when he talks about Captain Marvel. He's not talking about the recent movie. He's talking about a different character altogether. Right. I'm not talking about the recent Captain Marvel movie. I'm talking about the recent Shazam movie because that character, the main character of Shazam, was originally called Captain Marvel. Um, but then, obviously, Marvel Comics came about later and became big. And so now you can't call that character Captain Marvel anymore. Feels a bit like uh, what comic books itself, movies brought the popularity back. Not to the point of old numbers, but as far as people getting into the game and quality. Now with comic strips, did it seem like there was a point where the whole medium might die and then it didn't? Absolutely. It looked like comic strips were going to shrink into nothingness, honestly, because... As comic strips became less important to newspapers, as readers were no longer saying, I'm not going to subscribe to the Times, I'm going to subscribe to the journal because a journal, uh, because a journal has this comic strip I like, uh, Lil Abner or something. Um, as it became less important, newspapers wanted to use that space for advertising. So instead of having like a six page section for comic strips, it got reduced to three pages and then reduced to one page. And so comic strips in response became physically tiny. Um, and after a certain point, we no longer had great soap opera comics in the newspapers or great adventure comics because those had to have a lot of words and lush, complicated artwork. And instead, our great comic strips were things like Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes, which are genuinely wonderful comic strips, but also have relatively simple drawing and can make sense shrunk to tiny sizes. So it looked like the comic strips were going to just be shrunk out of existence. But then came the internet. And with web comics, there are now thousands of four paddle comic strips in all sorts of genres. Uh, and it's a very lively, flourishing scene, not one where many people get to earn a living, but in terms of a huge variety of strip speed out there, uh, it's, it's bigger than it ever was, I think. And as newspapers have disappeared, have there been online sites to kind of replace them? I know of the Nib, that's one. 
Is that the only one or have others popped up where cartoonists can showcase their work? The Nib is pretty much the only one. The Nib is a brainchild of Matt Bores. Matt Bores is one of the best political cartoonists working today. And he's also this amazing fountain of energy, which is why I could do things like create the Nib. And I know it hasn't been easy for him because trying to find an economic model to make the Nib work has been difficult. He's had to try a few different things. And, uh, and because it is difficult, we don't see a lot of other people rushing in to fill that niche. But so there's not much in terms of specialized political cartooning sites. But what there are are social media sites where you can publish your cartoons and potentially have them seen by thousands of people uh, for free. Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, sites like that. So in that way, things are good. Um, but of course, because there's you know a onrushing flood of material on Twitter, breaking through there can be really difficult. Have you noticed uh, there's one particular social media site that is most popular for sharing of cartoons? It depends on the cartoonists and the cartoons, but basically Facebook. Facebook is a giant that's bigger than anything else. It's where your mom and her friends are sharing cartoons. Um, but for me personally, Twitter has been much bigger. Um, I think uh, the kind my cartoons, my political cartoons tend to be a little less aggressive and more focused on ongoing social issues rather than uh, what's the funny thing I could say about Donald Trump today? And I think there's maybe a little bit more of an audience for that on Twitter. Uh, and there are cartoonists who are like pure Tumblr cartoonists because even though Facebook is the biggest, each site has different audiences and your cartoon may appeal more to the audiences of a somewhat smaller site. How did you and your roommates end up in Portland? Well, we were living in Boston at the time. And the economy sucked. We had trouble finding jobs. This was like 25 years ago. And we decided we wanted to move to a city where we might be able to find work and not be worrying about how we're going to pay for groceries all the time. Um, I had a cartoonist friend who was living in Portland. And so I'd visited Portland a couple of times, found it really pleasant, knew that I had a good public transportation system, which is important to me because I don't have a driver's license. Um, and so we decided to give Portland a try. We drove across the country. Um, and uh, Portland Portland has kind of become a hub for cartoonists, I'd say, along with Brooklyn. Those are like the two big hubs of cartooning in the United States. And I don't even think it happened on purpose. There were a couple of copper companies that located here, um, Dark Horse being the largest. And more cartoonists started moving here. And once they were here, they began saying to their friends, hey, it's pretty nice in Portland. You should move here too. And it was affordable 25 years ago. <laughs> um, and so it was just one of those things. As more cartoonists moved here, the bigger group of cartoonists meant more cartoonists were drawn to moving here. And it just snowballed. Now, we kind of touched upon this earlier, but tell us more about Hereville. Hereville is about an 11-year-old Orthodox Jewish girl who wants to fight monsters. And she has magical adventures. In the first book, she meets a witch. There's a knitting duel with a troll. <laughs> and there's this epic confrontation with a unreasonably angry pig. And it's also about her home life and being a girl in a Jewish community. And Hereville came about partly because um, I w just wanted to do a fun adventure story. 
but also because I wanted a different kind of Jewish comic because there were a, there were and are great Jewish comics. But at the time I started Hereville, it felt to me like most of the Jewish comic books were either instructional books like, hey, kids, let's talk about how to make a Seder um, <laughs> or they were brilliant, incredibly depressing books based around the Holocaust or the Shoah, most famously Mouse by Art Spiegelman. I want to be clear, I am not dissing that work. That is great work. But I wanted to read a comic book where um, it wasn't about Judaism, but it was fully Jewish, and where uh, Judaism was a source of joy for the characters, and where the plot was not in any way driven by the Holocaust. Um, and so Hereville was my response for that. It was a kind of comic book I'd wanted to read, but couldn't read because no one was making it yet. Um, and I am actually pretty proud of how it came out that way. I mean, like any old work you do, you look at it and you're like, oh, why did I do it different? But I think it really does provide a kind of unique uh, thing that isn't on the market otherwise uh, in its approach to Judaism. Um, the characters are Jewish and Ju Judaism is very important in their lives, but it's not a story about Judaism. It's a story about a girl who has adventures, um, but she is fully Jewish. Is that the reason why all the characters are Orthodox Jews so that it's more interwoven into their daily rituals? Right. So it's embedded, uh, because what's, if you want to do a comic book and you want it to be obvious that the characters are Jewish, but you don't want them to walk into the room saying, hi, I'm Susan. I'm Jewish, by the way. <laughs> uh, that they're Jewish just has to be visible in their daily activities. And so it made a lot of sense to have the characters be orthodox just so that it could be something that was part of every element of their life without me having to always point to that. What I really enjoyed about the book was also the way you showed um, compassion with the characters where you see this in like just American waspy stuff, right? Like being Christian or white is just normal in the comic book, right? You don't even point it out. So with this, you did the same thing where it's just, this is just normal. This is a default. In Hereville, default is Jewish. Um, yeah. And I actually, I don't know that there's ever been a Christian character in Hereville. Uh, there may be some time in the future. I've always wanted to do a story where Merca ends up getting lost and winds up in secular society and is horribly confused by everything around her. Um, but then, you know, finds out about TV and is really awed by that. Um, but, but yeah, that's exactly what I wanted Hereville to be. I wanted Hereville to be a story where being Jewish is just the default. Did you want to do that? Because so often in American culture, the default is white Christian. Well, I wouldn't have put it that way, but yes, I mean, it's just something, um, you know, as a Jew, you know that uh, Jewish characters are just always going to be either rare or absent in nearly everything you watch in popular culture. Or even if they're Jewish, it'll be something that comes up once in a blue moon. Like, I'm glad Willow on Buffy the Vampire Slayer was Jewish, but I think it was actually mentioned in maybe three episodes in the entire seven-year run. And that's fine. Not everything has to be about being Jewish, but you want to see that. You want to, it's not that I'm not going to read uh, books and watch movies with Christian characters. Of course, I'm going to do that because a lot, you know, that's, that's the default and a bunch of those default movies are great. But 
you want to also be able to read media that speaks more to you and your experience that that acknowledges that people like me exist. Um, and I mean, do you find do you have a similar experience um, looking for media that has Asian characters in it or Asian American characters? Yeah, I think you're just speaking to a universal feeling, right, of diversity, right? You want to see representation because that's what speaks to you, but also to know that you're not this other, but you're also a default. You're also just a person. You're you're the main character in your story, because I think growing up, maybe you felt the same way. But often I always felt like, you know, we we think in narrative and I always felt like even though it's from my perspective, I saw myself as the sidekick to a lot of my friends just because that's how it was portrayed in media or I felt non-existent, like I'm just a viewer and these are everybody else's stories, right? And so representation is important in that way to know that, oh, okay, I do exist and this is also normal. Do you know who the cartoonist Gene Yang is? No. Um, he's a wonderful cartoonist. A book of his won the uh, won a major children's book award. Uh, the book was called American Born Chinese. Um, and Gene, when he read the first Hirva book, he dropped me a note and said he really liked it, which for me was like, oh my God, Jing Yang read my work. Uh, and he told me, because we were both going to be at San Diego Comic Con that year, he told me I should stop by his table and chat with him. Um, so at Comic Con that year, I did. I, I'd been tabling elsewhere in a con, but I took a break and I went over to Gene's table and he very nicely invited me to sit with him for a while. And uh, not all of Gene's fans, but a huge portion, well over half of the fans coming up to talk to Gene were Asian. And it made me think, wait, are most of the people coming to talk to me Jewish and I don't even notice? <laughs> to your point, right? Like that is important. It's not even that it's some form of tribalism, but it's more like you want to thank these creators. Like, I'm sure people feel the same way about you in that. Thank you for telling our story. The thing that feels wonderful to me, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't just want Jewish readers. I want every reader. Yeah. <laughs> I want all the readers. But sometimes I'll do a book signing at Pals or something, and I'll notice in the back of the room a modern Orthodox couple standing standing there with their daughter and that makes me feel good because um it's very possible that this will be the only fun adventure book that girl gets to read with big with not just a main character but a lot of characters who have a life experience somewhat like her own and that just pleases me what i find interesting is that these are cartoons and you're drawing them like cartoons, yet the characters are not cartoony. So that's what's great about it. And I think that's what is good representation when you portray people in a non-cartoonish way. Because oftentimes I think when a Jewish person is in the media, in a you know classic movies or TV shows, same with Asians, they're drawn in this caricature, cartoonish way. And I guess that's what I meant by compassion. Even though you are a cartoonist, you could have easily drawn them or portrayed them in some foolish cartoonish way, but you didn't. That's the compassion you showed. You drew and you wrote every character with compassion. Thank you. It's actually one of the things that makes me think it's important to have books in which 
nearly all the characters are uh, of something other than the default. We're, like having a book where all the characters are Asian or all the characters are black or all the characters are Jewish. Because if you have a book with like your one Jewish character, that puts a lot of pressure on that character. Mm-hmm. And anything that you have trait you give that character, you have to be super careful because you know, you know, you want to be careful not to run into stereotypes because that's your only Jewish character. On the other hand, if your book has dozens of Jewish characters, there's not an issue in having one character be a greedy businessman because no one can read it and think this person is saying Jews are a greedy businessman. You read it and think, oh, Jews are all kinds of people, including bad people, including good people. They're just a mix. Um, and that's the trouble with a lot of TV shows that have, you know, their five white main characters and then their diverse character is it puts a lot, it puts a lot of pressure on that diverse character to not be anything that can be read negatively. And that can lead to the character being bland. That's actually a good point. Maybe even the intent might be good, but you know, as a writer, right? When you just have one character that has to carry it all, there's really no way to have one character carry that all on their shoulders. There's another comic I do. I don't know if you've seen this one. It's called Super Butch. And it's co-created by me and Becky Hawkins. And it's about a lesbian superhero in the 1940s who protects the bar scene for corrupt cops. Um, And uh, we had an early version of the script we had a sensitivity reader read it because Super Butch has a bunch of characters from different backgrounds. Uh, but the main character of this first Super Butch graphic novel is black. And of course, I did my research and uh, I read a lot of books from black authors uh, that were written in the time period of Super Butch. But I'm not going to know anything. So we hired a sensitivity reader. Uh, the sensitivity reader was excellent, and he came back to us with some small points, but also a big point, which is that the two uh, the two black characters in the comic book appeared isolated. They didn't seem to be part of a community or part of a family, and that's something that, first of all, went completely over my head when I was writing that script. And second of all, once it was pointed out to me, it made me go, oh my God, that's a huge flaw. Why did I see that? And it led to a very large reworking of how we approach the story um, and how we approach that character. Um, And it goes, uh, I guess it goes back to what I said about you can't have just one black character. It has to be, you have to have... um, a feeling that there's basically an infinite number of characters and we're going to run into a dozen of them in the course of this particular narrative. So basically that they exist in this world. It's not just these two characters. That they exist in this world. And, you know, and of course, anything you look into, if it's, there's going to be some fascinating uh, history or context to if you look enough. So one thing about Black lesbian community in the 1940s is that they were, although Black lesbians went to the bar scene and were part of the bar scene, uh, the center of their community was mostly house parties. And they would have these enormous, elaborate house parties that would be nearly entirely attended by Black lesbians and that were such a central aspect of their community. And um, 
And there's so much interesting material there. And once I had that response for the sensitivity reader, that encouraged me to really do the research and find out that there were all these amazing things that I could include in the comic. And right now, um, the, um, what do you call them? Uh, the intellectual dark web. One of their bugaboos right now is that they hate sensitivity readers. Uh, there was just last week an article in Quillette about how sensitive sensitivity readers are the new censorship. Um, and it's so terrible and sensitivity readers are stolid and it's just ludicrous. Sensitive sensitivity readers are like copy editors. They're someone who has a special skill and can help me make my work better. But in the end, I'm the one who's deciding and it's still written by me. Um, but you know, anything that acknowledges that racism or sexism or homophobia exists, uh, these people panic and go, it's the new totalitarianism. To be a good cartoonist, how important is research? It depends on what kind of comic you're writing. Um, you know, but I would say usually very important. Um, you know, obviously, the further removed your fiction is from the real world, the less important research becomes. Um, you could easily imagine a fantasy comic that was all about, you know, the blue blobs versus the orange squares, where there would be very little research possible. But that's rare. Most comics, research is part of it. And I agree that practicing drawing is essential. But if you're writing your own comics, practicing the craft of writing is just as essential. And part of that is learning how to research. Part of that is learning about story structure um, and how to create characters who are hopefully compelling. Um, so I'm very much of the belief that, you know, draw a thousand pages, get all the bad pages out of you, and hopefully there are good pages underneath that. But uh, that applies not just to drawing, but to writing. And for the work I do, it tends to be research heavy. You know, if you're writing a comic about a lesbian community in the 1940s, uh, I mean, there is literally, not literally, I guess there may be a few people left, but basically no one is alive who is part of the community I'm writing about. So there has to be a lot of research. And that includes talking to folks who are alive in the 1940s, but for me, it's mainly books. There's this, there are some wonderful books, basically oral histories of that period. Um, there are archives you can visit and look through the old newspaper articles they have. Um, and for Hereville, of course, that's another whole, that's another pile of research because uh, you have to, or I have to learn about the lives of 11-year-old uh, Hasidic girls. And there is research out there. Uh, there's stuff written by anthropologists who have studied those girls. Uh, there's women who grew up in that community and then left the community and then published novels in a secular world based on their own childhood. And that's incredibly valuable for me to read. Um, so yeah, research is always it. And really, sensitivity readers are another form of research. Now, how did you go from a kid drawing cartoons of Ronald Reagan to publishing Hereville? So um, I've always, uh, for most of my life, I would say actually uh, narrative comics like Hereville, comics that tell a story, have been the thing I like reading the most. 
Um, although I like political cartoons as well. My first love is long form comic book storytelling. Um, so when I did Hearville, I first did it as a web comic. Um, and when I had about 60 pages of that web comic, I paid a printer to print this 60 page stapled comic book. And I brought it to a comic book convention here in town. Stumptown uh, is the name of the comic book convention. Um, and Stumptown no longer exists, unfortunately, but for a while it was a great con because most comic book conventions nowadays are all about celebrities and can you get the Star Trek actor's autograph and video games. And there's not all that much about comics, really, but Stumptown was a comic book convention that was all about the comics. And I got very lucky in terms of how Hearville's path to being published. Um, I brought that self-published comic to Stumptown. I'd rented a table at Stumptown that my table ended up being next to Scott McCloud's table. Scott McCloud is a much more famous and successful cartoonist. He's best known for his amazing graphic novel called Understanding Comics, which is a comic book about comic books and well worth reading. Um, so I was next to Scott McCloud. Scott has an agent, Judy Hansen, really wonderful agent. She lives in New York City, but she happened to be in Portland that weekend. And she came by Scott's table. And because I was next to Scott, she heard me talking about a comic about an 11-year-old Orthodox Jewish girl who wants to fight monsters. She picked up a copy. And the next day, she came back and asked if I was interested in being represented. And a few months later, I had a book deal with Abrams. So I had a sickeningly easy path um, from webcomic to, uh, to published comic. Are conventions uh, a piece of advice that you give to young cartoonists and artists who want to make it in the business to go to conventions and try to make connections and network with established cartoonists and maybe try to meet an agent? Or is that a piece of advice that you used to give, but now you've modified it? It was much more important, uh, at, in the past. Uh, when I was in the 80s, what was important for me, for me and for many people out going to comic book conventions wasn't the chance to be publishers and agents because I wasn't at that level when I started. Most people go through years of not being at a professional level. Uh, what was really valuable to me is I met other cartoonists at my own level. And that meant I had people who would read my work, which means so much, and discuss how it could have been done better. It gave me people who we could I could talk about craft and technique with. Um, because if you talk about that to ordinary people, they really look for an excuse to get away from you. Um, and that's wonderful. And if you can find that at cons nowadays, that's great. But I will say conventions nowadays are mostly trash. They're mostly terrible. <laughs> um, Why? Well, for one thing, as I mentioned earlier, they're not really about comic books anymore, most of them. So if your goal is to meet people who are into comic books and to get that kind of culture, you're going to go there and you're going to find mostly people who are interested in prints or in um, Spike's autograph from Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, or in buying clothing. The amount of it uh, that is dedicated to the comics is very small. And that makes it harder to meet other cartoonists. Um, and now the internet exists. So that purpose of, you know, when I was starting, conventions were it. They were the only place you could meet other cartoonists. But now you can find forums online. You can show your work to people online. 
So you definitely should go to comic book veterans if you're the sort of person who is good at meeting people in a crowded, noisy convention hall. Some people have that social skill set. And if you do, conventions are wonderful. If you don't, they can be torturous and hard and expensive. Now, once you're at the level where you are producing professional quality work, then conventions can be useful again, because then you can print up your own copies of your work and just give it away to people in the industry. And that might be good. Uh, That might be helpful. It certainly was for me. Um, But uh, if that isn't what you're going there for, then you have to ask yourself, is this a lot of fun for me? Because if it's not a lot of fun, then you're probably not getting much out of it. And any of the professional reasons for going to conventions as a not yet published cartoonist have been superseded by the web. And the web is so much better at it. This is a personal curiosity I have, but was Hereville, the first book about Mirka and her sword fighting trolls, was it a metaphor for fighting online trolls? Or <laughs> <laughs> It was not. Um, I... I chose the word troll arbitrarily. I could have gone with any sort of monster name. Um, but And the possible connection to online trolls has been pointed out to me since. And to be fair, the troll in Hereville has that kind of personality. And I'm sure he does troll people online. <laughs> um, but in terms of the voice I hear in my head when I'm writing the troll, it's always comic shop guy for The Simpsons. <laughs> So even though that wasn't the intent, it still works that way also. Yeah, you could definitely read it that way. The troll has very much that personality. Now, where do you get the ideas for your political cartoons? I get mad about something. (laughs) And then I think about whether or not it's possible to make that funny. It's a very weird state of mind to try and get into. Um, And... Uh, very often when I'll do, if the weather's nice is I'll just go to a park and I'm going to sit on a park bench and, uh, refuse to let myself leave until I have at least two cartoon ideas. Um, and because it's very easy, especially with the internet to never be at a point where you're doing nothing. Um, even if you're relaxing, you're not relaxing by sitting and contemplating, probably you're relaxing by getting on Twitter or watching uh, something on Netflix or something. And you need, or at least I need, that time when I'm doing nothing in order to think of ideas. So sitting on a park bench, taking a bus somewhere, showers. A lot of my friends who are creative find showers to be a very fertile place to think of ideas. Now, when people think of artists, they don't really... I think regular people don't think about discipline, but it sounds like there takes a lot of discipline because you said you'll park yourself at the park, but you will not leave until you've hit some kind of quota that you've created for yourself. I'll say this. The most successful cartoonists are, for the most part, very disciplined, very disciplined. Matt Bores works amazingly hard and amazingly consistently, and that's awesome. But I know many cartoonists who are not all that disciplined. (laughs) I'm not all that disciplined. I mean, there are the days when I'm like, I wake up 
I get drawing, I go to the park to think of ideas, and it's all snapping along. And there are days when it seems like there's some sort of weird gravity holding me stuck in my house and nothing gets done. And I think that discipline is super important. And as I said, the most successful cartoonists have great discipline. But I think that sometimes we overemphasize that Mm. and people who maybe have ADHD or for some for whatever reason don't have that kind of superb discipline um feel that it's hopeless that they can't make it and um, the truth is you're probably not ever going to become Neil Gaiman if you're not very disciplined but there's a whole lot of cartooning that comes that doesn't rise to that level of success that is nonetheless legitimate and people produce good, solid work. So if you don't have superlative discipline, that's something that's going to be something to overcome in your career, but it doesn't make a career impossible. Now you mentioned about how with the internet and probably our phones, it's really hard to find time where you're doing nothing, but you need time to do nothing to do your work. And you said what inspires a lot of your political work is when you get mad about something. So does it work kind of like where you said Twitter can be a time suck, but you use Twitter to kind of get mad about something and then you got to put down Twitter to get to work and think about, okay, can I make this funny? Absolutely. And a lot of times it'll be, you know, you've noticed this thing on Twitter or wherever that gets you angry. And then it'll sit in my mind for months because the turn it into a cartoon that's worth reading. I mean, there's so many subjects that I want to do comic strips about, but I don't because I don't have an inspired idea. And you can tell, I used to more often do what I call dutiful comics. Like, oh, this is something that's so important. I have to do a comic strip about this. And I've noticed that when I look back on my output years later, those comics are so often mediocre. Uh, they're very, they're almost never my favorite comics. And I've come to realize, you know, I can't do comics about everything. I don't work that way. So my comics over the years, there's very little foreign policy in my comics. And it's not that I don't think foreign policy is important. It's essential. But I don't tend to get inspired to do comics about foreign policy. Most of my comics are about social justice issues. Because for whatever reason, those are the subjects that get me the draw um, and that ideas come to my head. And sometimes uh, one comic strip I recently did, um, I had a rough draft of it that sat in my computer for over a decade because it took that long for me to think of how to turn it into a comic strip I want to read. Um, Very recently, the comic strip I just released uh, in public this week, I think, or last week. Um, I was doing a comic strip about the the stupid cliche. Well, people back then had no idea. You know, <laughs> like, well, you can't judge the founding fathers for being slave owners because no one back then knew that slavery was wrong. And of course, that's such a lie. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, Obviously, black people knew that slavery was wrong, <laughs> but they don't exist. They're not people. Right? <laughs> There's yeah, they're never considered when people talk about stuff like that. But oh, but even among white people, slavery was super controversial, and there were plenty of people saying slavery is wrong, slavery is evil. It's not that Thomas Jefferson and George Washington had never heard of this idea. 
uh, is that they heard it. And for whatever reason, probably because their own wealth was wrapped up in being slave owners, they didn't believe it. Um, so, and then I was thinking about this in regard to blackface because blackface was yet again in the news and thinking about how I could do it. And I was thinking about a range of jumping backwards in time. So first it would be someone talking about Justin Trudeau and saying, well, sure, but that was the year 2000. No one in 2000 knew blackface was wrong. <laughs> and then jump to 2000 where someone is saying, oh, sure, but that was the 80s. No one in the 80s knew it was wrong, but I couldn't figure out how it ended. And then when I was you know, just researching blackface online, trying to find because, you know, you just read about a subject. That's sometimes where inspiration comes from. I came across a quote from Frederick Douglass talking about what shit blackface is. <laughs> and that gave me an ending to the cartoon because uh, it jumps from the 80s to, I think it's 1848. Um, just to make this point, pe most of these things people have always known. There's never been a time when people had no idea that racism existed and was bad. It kind of makes me wonder about things people say now, like if it goes all the way back to the so-called founding fathers, right? Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, people are, are saying that maybe they had no idea, but no, there were people talking about slavery was bad even back then. So I wonder if the establishment at the time was like, oh, the far left, they're complaining again that slavery is bad. I wonder if there's a continuous history about they're too extreme. The far left, they want us to get rid of slaves. Now what? We talked about Will Eisner earlier. Now, Will Eisner's Spirit, his comic, uh, comic book from the 1930s and 40s, had for a while a very racist character named Ebony. Um, and one thing, um, and if you look at Ebony, you're going to uh, the, the character is embarrassing to look at through modern eyes. But I researched this once for a panel I was appearing on. And although right now it is right now, I don't think anyone would deny the way Ebony was drawn was racist. But at the time, there were people talking about what was then called the Sambo style of drawing black people. People knew it was racist. It was controversial. Um, and Eisner was aware of it as he was drawing those comics, which is why he eventually stopped including the character. Um, and there were people back then saying, but if we can't do this, aren't we just being humorless? How are we going to have entertainment at all? So uh, I'm not going to say nothing's new, but a lot of these arguments go back further than we imagine. And now, um, I don't know how old you are. I'm 50. So one thing you may you have maybe begun to notice this, I'm noticing a lot, is that young people talk about the 1980s as if it was the dark ages. <laughs> um, you know, as if the um, homophobia in the 1980s was so complete that not a single gay person in the US could ever get step out of the closet. And if they did, they would be immediately beaten up. And I don't want to say homophobia wasn't bad in the 80s. Obviously, it was. But the world was a lot more varied then than young people today know. I mean, because it's not like, you know, you reach, I don't know, 1995 and suddenly the world's less homophobic. It goes in pockets here and there. So your experience of homophobia, if you lived in San Francisco, was probably very different uh, than your experience if you lived in Idaho. Um, and 
it's easy to lose that, uh, to forget that, you know, the people of any period you look at were never all one thing. So basically it goes both directions, right? There were racists back then and going back to the founding of this country and there are racists still today. It didn't go away. And the same thing, there are people who say racism is bad today. And there were people saying that way back then. Yeah. And I'm not, there have been gains, obviously, huge, significant gains since George Washington, abolishment of slavery, suffrage. So it's not that I'm not going to say things have never changed. Um, Anti-racist activists, as you just said, have always been with us and they've accomplished a lot. And we make a mistake if we erase those anti-racist activists, if we forget that there have always been people um, who have understood and fought against racism. Um, it's important that if, we, if we're trying to be anti-racist today, that we realize we're continuing a long tradition. We're not doing something that was just invented. We didn't just start the fight. Yeah. <laughs> Now, were you surprised by the resurgence in popularity of political cartoons, especially when it looked like political cartoons were on the brink of doom because of the end of newspapers? Or do you think a lot of it was the election of Donald Trump and people were interested in it again? I don't know if I was surprised because, you know, I was just as embedded in the country going to shit as everyone else. <laughs> um, but honestly, it's not something I've ever thought about before this question. But uh, now that you mentioned it, it's not surprising. And the thing is, political cartoons, if you include memes, and many memes are political cartoons. I mean, you know, they're a picture and a caption relating to politics and intended to be funny. That's a political cartoon. Um, they're huge now, but also they've been democratized. <laughs> um, one thing that is very clear is that it matters to readers surprisingly little how well-drawn a political cartoon is. <laughs> and it's a little bit humbling. And um, it's a reminder that uh, those of us who spend a lot of time working on the drawing element, we're doing this to please ourselves as much as anything else. Um, it's not something our audience is demanding of us. Um, so I guess that's good to know. You can always learn things. So. I think what memes have taught a lot of us is that, especially because memes are spread by a lot of young people, the good ones, right? It's so much more about the idea in the meme than the artwork. So a lot of times people will just, just be inspired to create some kind of meme and they'll draw it really fast and then just put it out there. But the concept, you know, that's what really gets people. I think that's the beauty of memes versus like comic strips or cartoons is that it's graded on the concept. And I think we didn't know what memes were a while back, but now a lot of people get it, that it's about the concept. And now a lot of memes have uh, these uh, rich philosophical undertones where they're reading a lot of the, the kid meme makers are reading like old philosophy to inspire their new works. Yeah. Um, and it's this rich new field that I, I, as an old person, do not completely understand. And that's okay. <laughs> It's not for me. I mean, the memes I really hate are the some of the right wing memes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not because I disagree with them. One difference between being a political cartoonist versus being a regular reader is regular readers always think that political cartoons they disagree with are trash. 
as whereas political cartoonists, for the most part, are able to look at a political cartoon they disagree with and still recognize, okay, this is terrible from a political perspective, but there's actually a lot of good craft going on here. But the right-wing memes, the memes from like the anti-social justice crowd, are sort of anti-craft. They're deliberately finding the ugliest uh, drawing they can make and then badly copied it a few dozen times to make it uglier. And for them, I think it's part of the you know, faux irony that they traffic in. I mean, as well as thumbing their noses at the idea of kindness and of being against racism and sexism, they're thumbing their noses at the idea of caring about craft, at trying to do a good job at something. So if you're familiar with Dungeons and Dragons, which you're nodding your head. And we're in the Pacific Northwest, so this is D&D country here. <laughs> when I think about right-wing memes, political memes, I think of uh, the D&D alignment, Chaotic Evil. Most of the time, right, if you play that game, you didn't want to be Chaotic Evil. But all the, all the weird, kind of scary kids, the ones that seemed a little bit dangerous who like Chaotic Evil, they went to the right, and that's, that's what informs their memes. And also, they're well aware of that alignment, and they revel in it. That's why they love the Joker. They look for every chaotic, evil character in movies and they make a meme out of it. And that's why they distort the images. Like you said, they copy it and copy it until it looks all not pixelated, but it just looks like the computer version of just muddy. Yeah. And just because we know it'll just be aesthetically unappealing because they want to kind of gross this out in every possible way. And also, it's a form of cowardice. Um I mean, first of all, on an aesthetic level, if you're trying to be as bad as possible, that's kind of safe, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You can't fail at being really bad, whereas anyone who's any good probably spent years having to deal with not being good and just having to work at it, and uh, they avoid all that. But also politically, they're able to be ambiguous about what they stand for. They can be completely Nazi. But if you call them on it, they're like, ah, that was a joke. I'm not really Nazi. Hail Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's annoying. And I myself don't care about the Joker movie much. I think it's going to be one of these things that everyone is angry over this week. And then in a month, everyone will forgot that they even said anything about it. You know, I think that. I don't like that a lot of people are specifically criticizing the movie that they haven't seen. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's not a movie I'm planning to see because it looks so morbid and grim. And I don't want, I'll see sad movies, but I don't want to see movies that can't even imagine anything but sadness. Mm -hmm. But that just means it's not a movie for me. Um, you know, if people see it and enjoy it, great. And, the fact that the director is a dick should have prevent us from seeing it and enjoying it. <laughs> the Joker iconography in right-wing media goes way back before the movie, I think. But I think that is what pushes people away from the movie. Not so much that they don't know if the movie is good or not, but it's kind of like how we judge a lot of things. We judge it by the fans. <laughs> so they're just like, oh, this uh, racist kid I know, he really wants to see that movie. I don't want to see it. There's this... Um I don't know what to call that group, but anti-social justice seems to work. Pundit, who I follow on Twitter, um, we talk, we chat a bunch on Twitter, um, Kathy Young, and she's actually 
she's a really nice person on a personal level. I I met her in person once. I like Kathy. But because I follow her, we occasionally talk. Twitter constantly shows me whatever Kathy has liked that day. <laughs> and I've noticed that it forms for me frequently a guide to things I'll enjoy. Like if Kathy liked a tweet about how some uh, comedian was left-wing and boring and no one could find this funny, I'll go and look at the comedian and it's hilarious. <laughs> so it's actually become a kind of useful consumer guide to, yeah, for me. Yeah, because even a cautionary tale is still some kind of informative guide, right? Yeah. Now, in your cartoons, what I enjoy most isn't your critique of the right-wingers, and you don't do a lot of this, the obvious stuff, like just making fun of Donald Trump's hair and stuff like that. But what I like is the more subtle stuff, which is this critique of the center. And now getting to know you better and in speaking with you, maybe it goes way back because for a lot of people, this critique of the center didn't really start until 2016. This type of like political awakening where you're like, oh, the center is also the problem. I think that started a lot with uh, Bernie Sanders and also Trump becoming president and also this like passivity of the, the center. So is what inspires you to do these type of cartoons about the center and this critique of them? Is it because in some ways, centrist Democrats annoy you more or frustrate you more than the right? No, I'd say I find them equally frustrating, or I don't even think about it in those terms. It's not that the centrists frustrate me collectively. It's that particular arguments they make frustrate me. Like the whole thing about the campus free speech crisis. You know, um, I agree, actually, that there are problems there. And I would. And I think they should be talked about, but it's hard to talk to it to about it to centrists because centrists have this view that the problem with catfish free speech is protesting students. And that is something to talk about. But we also have to talk about right wing legislatures passing laws in order to punish colleges for teaching things they don't like. Um, or deliberately defunding divisions of colleges they don't like. Because basically, I think for a lot of the centrist pundits, their problem, um, what they can see is that they themselves are speakers on college campus. So they can easily imagine going to a campus to speak and being protested and feeling shut, shut up. But the all the other myriad forms of censorship going on are things they don't imagine and don't think about. So if you read Centrist Columbus, you would think the major free speech fight today is that there are student activists and they protest. Um, and But if you look at it realistically, um, if we limit ourselves to campus, there's a huge amount or an equal amount of censorship from the right. There's plenty of instances of professors, left-wing professors, getting fired because they said something intemperate on Twitter, and there was a social media storm about it, and the university felt pressured to let them go. But let's go outside of campuses. If you look at the most censored people today, it's not going to be the kind of people who are invited to speak on campus. 
those people are generally wealthy and successful. You can't shut them up. No matter how <laughs> they have just too much access to media. Um, you know, it would be like trying to shut down a river with a Dixie cup. But people who can be shut up are the people who do not have power. Um, ICE has sometimes targeted um, undocumented immigrant activists for speaking up. Um, and and that is someone who the government can shut up. That is real important censorship. And you do not see these columnists ever talk about it. Uh, prisoners, prisoners are so shut up. There are so many stories of prisoners who talk to a reporter or something, and then uh, the prison finds an excuse to push them into solitary confinement. And that's serious censorship. That's the most serious censorship there is. You're not going to see any of these free speech centrist pundits talking about it. Uh, sex workers. We just had a major law passed, and every Democrat but one in the Senate voted for this law, which has basically made it impossibly risky for websites like Craigslist to have a space for um, sex workers to advertise and find clients, which doesn't mean that the sex workers get out of sex work. It means that they have to return in many ways to pre-internet days when it was much harder and more dangerous to find clients. Uh, to find clients. So that's a form of censorship that actually could get people killed, but the people aren't powerful and are not being asked to talk on campus. So we don't have um, people writing columns about it in the Atlantic. And so that's the sort of thing that gets me really angry. And But it's not that I'm mad at centrists as a thing. I'm just very angered by this issue and the way that these pundits who happen to be centrist for the most part uh, talk about it. Going back to what you were talking about earlier about the history of ideas, probably these centrist arguments then go way back. Even probably when you were uh, doing stuff about Reagan, it probably existed. And even going back to the founding fathers, it probably existed. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there were people during uh, during slavery who were saying, well, you know, slavery does seem morally questionable, but those abolitionists seem extreme. <laughs> and isn't the violence that someone like John Brown does that you can never justify that just to try and get rid of slavery? What's horrifying is that actually sounds like something that actually happened. I don't know from direct knowledge and research, but I would be willing to bet money that there were people trying to find the middle path between slavery and abolition. Now, going back to your point about colleges, I feel like colleges are this red herring for the right and for a lot of centrist pundits because it's the small, like isolated bubble where the most egregious stuff is happening outside of colleges, right? You're talking about censorship, the worst type of censorship. Most of us are not in college. The stuff that affects us is outside of college. And I was reading this article about affirmative action and they're complaining like, oh, they're trying to like get rid of meritocracy and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, dude, the worst forms of anti-diversity and gatekeeping happens outside of colleges. So you're focusing all this stuff on the colleges, which is very minute, so that everybody takes their eyes off the real world. And the thing is, the media buys into it and they also focus on that. And I think going to your point, that is when these centrist arguments then become dangerous and also then just become right wing arguments. It's kind of like uh, we were talking about these forums, right? 
and I run a forum myself, if you make a free speech and allow racists to come in, right? Even if you just allow five, eventually the whole thing will just become a Nazi shit show. And that's the problem with centrist arguments, I think, is like when they're trying to mix the ice cream with the shit, you don't have 50-50. You just have 100% shit. And that's why a lot of times by being complicit to right-wing arguments, they just become right-wing arguments. Yeah, different flavors of right-wing argument. But like uh, I was talking before about cowardice um, and refusing to take a position. The IDW... Uh, your readers, your listeners are all going to oh, know what yeah. the IDW is. Yeah. The IDW is like that because if you talk to them, they're like, well, we have no ideology. If you look at our group, we have, you know, we have a spread from Dave Rubin, who is a liberal, um, to um, Peterson, who's right wing. And, uh, and in a way, it's a way of being cowardly, refusing to take responsibility because the truth is, the reason all these people are in the IDW is that they all agree on their core issue, which is they are all against social justice. They all agree that social justice activists suck. They all agree that anti-racism has gone too far, that feminism has gone too far. So, And when I say these are core issues, what I mean is these are the issues that they talk about. Um, if you look at Christina Hoff Summers, uh, who's a big name anti-feminist uh, who identifies as a feminist. And she said, oh, I'm a feminist, I'm pro-choice, et cetera. But if you look at what she actually talks about, if you Google specifically what she's ever said about abortion, she is not fighting pro-lifers. <laughs> she is not talking about the dangers of a pro-life Supreme Court. When she mentions pro-choice, it's always but. Yeah. I'm pro-choice, but... And that reason she thinks current feminists are pro-choicers suck. For her, even if in her personal heart of hearts she believes abortion should be legal, she's effectively right-wing. Her purpose as a public speaker in mentioning that she is pro-choice is cowardice. It's to provide herself cover for making pot shots at feminists without admitting that she's an anti-feminist. And the whole IDW is like that. They have a coherent, recognizable, common ideology. But if they admitted that, they would lose this whole, we have no ideology defense. So they, they pretend not to have an ideology. They all share this one opening statement whenever they're interviewed. I'm a liberal, but. <laughs> yes. Every one of them has said this, like you said, Dave Rubin liberal how do you know because he always fucking talks about it <laughs> and then he adds the but so sticking with politics then what are your favorite sources for news what do you read um i read actually pretty mainstream uh sources uh i read the new york times i read the washington post i read vox um and for um for a lot of my other reading outside of those three publications I sort of rely on the people I follow on Twitter uh, to point out interesting articles I might not have seen otherwise. And I'm frankly always searching for right-wingers who I find reasonable and not demonizing um, so that I can follow their links to articles um, because I do want to keep up with that view of the world, uh, both to keep my own thinking from ossifying and to be able to depict it with some with some level of not just making it up out of whole cloth. 
Is that kind of like finding a unicorn at this point, though? It's hard. I mean, that's actually a good example. I don't think there's a single pro-Trump pundit I can read regularly. I guess Rod Dreher, is that his name? I've read multiple times, but he's gotten, I mean, part of the problem is that under the, in the age of Trump, the the conservatives who ex, who are Trumpites have gotten worse. It's magnified all their worst tendencies. So the right-wingers I do read tend to be anti-Trump right-wingers mm-hmm. and because they're comprehensible to me. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, that means I'm really limiting my Pardon me. I'm really limiting what I'm reading in a way that isn't ideal, I suppose. But after a certain point, like, uh, how many times can you read uh, global warming is a hoax arguments and realize and not realize they're all going to be bullshit? Like, you know, I used to spend hours if I was in conversation with whether these folks doing research and reading up on the science. And it's good for me. It's good for me that I did that research, but it's certainly not like they were going to listen. So, I mean, you have to focus, you have to decide what to do and what to, what you're going to read about, because you can't understand everything. So you need to try and understand some things. To your point, I think uh, another difficulty in finding reasonable people on the right to read just so you could get a different perspective that is actually useful and valuable is the fact that a lot of it is reruns, right? It's the same points over and over again. So it's almost like, oh, I guess I'm up to date. It's almost like updating a computer program. I think I don't need to read any right-wing stuff for another two years before they come up with something else, right? To be fair, we do that too. (laughs) I mean, and that's just the reality of it. It's not like, you know, the minimum wage is good, and it's good today for the exact same reasons it was good 20 years ago. So, of course, we're going to rerun arguments. It's unavoidable. And you got to do that because there's going to be some people reading or listening who the arguments are are new to. So I don't really blame the right wing for that. Um, there's a kind of ossified thinking that is much easier to notice in people you disagree with. Um, the Did you hear about the um, the... So, so call squared hoax. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the so call squared hoaxers is an interesting example of super ossified thinking because when you dig into it, I mean, when you hear people on the right talking about it, they're all going to say, well, what they did is they, ch- they took Hitler's writings and they changed Jews to men and all the publications loved it. Um, or they did pure nonsense and all the publications loved it. And that's all a lie. Uh, they did try those things and those were the ones that got rejected. What worked for them is they created reasonable sounding arguments with fake data because uh, da- data is really impressive to those publications. So they're going to be way more likely to accept something with fake data than something without data. Um, and for the most part, the reason they think it's ridiculous is because they consider these ideas unthinkable. So like one of the accepted journal articles was one about um, the idea of uh, bodybuilding tournaments, competitions, bodybuilding competitions for fat people, like fat people 
who are fat but still want to pump up and do that in a competitive way and talking about how that could be judged. Is there a way we could do this that wouldn't be damaging? Yeah. Um, and they got it, they got it published. Um, but it is only because they're in their little ossified form of thinking that they think that should be unthinkable, that they think it's actually ridiculous and wrong that people publish opinions about fat that they disagree with. And it's an incredibly narrow form of thinking that is becoming increase, increasingly acceptable. I mean, the intellectual dark web is very much blinkered in this way, and they believe they are the cutting edge of thought. Some of the the dog park one truly was ridiculous, and we should all laugh at the journal for publishing that one. But most of them, most of them, you could create an argument that it's reasonable. The bit of Mein Kampf yeah. they got published. Obviously, I'm not saying Hitler was good, but what they did is they picked out a small section of Mein Kampf where he wasn't talking about the Jews. He was yeah. talking about solidarity, and so you know Hitler may have liked eggs for breakfast, and that doesn't mean liking eggs for breakfast is bad. Hitler once said something nice about solidarity. That doesn't mean solidarity is bad. But they modernized the language, and they sent it to a journal. The journal reviewer said, you know, these parts seem way too extreme. Can you moderate it? So they moderated it, and then it got accepted, and they were like, we got Hitler published. Yeah. Um, and it's it's ridiculous, but there's an audience for this that just eats it up. Um, and they discovered early in their experiment, I, you probably already know this, um, they did pure nonsense. Their fir- the first journal things they wrote were deliberately nonsensical papers with like uh, buzzwords thrown in here and there. Yeah. And what they found is they were getting 100% rejection. And they admit this if you actually read buried in their write-up. Uh, but you know how many people actually do that? That one thing they found is that their claim that absolute nonsense was publishable was simply straight out wrong. From a left perspective, of course, some of this can get published because these arguments are reasonable. Yeah. But even from an IDW argument, your data shows that a lot of your nonsensical stuff got rejected. So yeah. what was your point? So from the left and even their own criteria of logic, it fails, yeah. yet they still run with it like, ha ha, we got you. I mean, the argument they're left with is that it is inherently ridiculous and wrong to think about um, how is gender expressed in a Hooters. Yeah. And again, if you're not a completely closed minded person, obviously there might be something interesting to be found about gender by studying the people in Hooters. Yeah. Why wouldn't there be? The world is incredibly rich. There's interesting things to be studied everywhere, but they have this view that you should only study whatever the narrow things that they believe in are. Well, if you ever listen to any of them in an extended conversation, like when they come out on Joe Rogan, one of the things about his show is that sometimes you'll talk to them for like four hours. So that's enough time for them to hang themselves with their own argument, meaning they'll say that, that some ideas are completely ridiculous. And then an hour later, they're complaining about social justice people and about how we just need to have a free open market of ideas. There should be no idea that's too ridiculous. Why can't I say this thought? You know, it's open market. If people don't like it, they don't like it. If they like it, they like it. But we should be able to question and think about everything. And this is when the show gets conspiratorial. This is a show that's talked about the possibility of the earth being flat or the moon landing being fake. 
open market of ideas, free market of ideas. There is no idea that you shouldn't be able to talk about. And that's another argument that IDW has made about college campuses. Why can't we talk about it? Why is it taboo to talk about race science and IQ and different races? Why is that so ridiculous? Yet, they also then can put constraints on ideas like, you can't think about that. So (laughs) what the hell are you guys talking about? I mean, what it comes down to is a lot of the IDW and a publication like Quillette, it's not all they do, but it's clear that a major part is that they want uh, their racist quote unquote science to be more respectable. And they don't deal with the fact that the reason that it's not more acceptable isn't that it's censored and no one is allowed to talk about it. It's for the same reason that no one talks about flat earth science in colleges, because it has been studied extensively, enormously. And that part of that way of thinking about biology has turned out to be wrong. And if you look at the record at what's published, this is an enormously studied subject. Um, there's no fear of studying it. There's no lack of research on it. The problem is the legitimate research all says comes to a conclusion that uh, the the racists do not like. And what's also funny is, speaking of Quillette, that they themselves got hoaxed. <laughs> I would say they got hoaxed several times because they were hoaxed uh, by uh, a person pretending to be the super lefty construction worker whose name was based off of Archie Bunker. So you would think that's the dead giveaway, yet it passed all their... And he said they were actually trying to help him embellish the story a bit to make it more making fun of the left. Not only did they get hoaxed there, but I would even argue that them ever having Andy No, the the writer who recently had to leave because you found out his whole background was dubious and all the work he had been doing covering Antifa was all not just flat out exaggerations, but a lot of it was also lies. And now he has legal problems for that. So I I would say they got hoaxed twice. Yeah. And you bring up a point that I was wondering about way early in our conversation. I mentioned last week's Quillette article about uh, sensitivity readers. And the article is very incoherent because it's a mix of him describing his own experience with a sensitivity reader, which was fine. He hired a sensitivity reader. The sensitivity reader made some suggestions and seemed to have been perfectly moderate and polite, no demands. His publisher was surprised he wanted a sensitivity reader, but didn't demand it. And from this very ordinary experience, he spun this conclusions in the middle of the article that this is the new censorship. These are the new gatekeepers. And I found myself really wondering, did Quillette put this stuff in to fit in with their theme better? Um, Because the distance between what he reports happening and the conclusions drawn in the article are like a mile wide. And I mean, I don't know what the editorial processes at Quillette are, and I'm never going to find out because I'm not going to submit to them because, you know, they will publish any leftist because they want to be able to point to a leftist and say, see, we're not a right-wing publication. Um, But, you know, I don't want to serve that purpose. A lot of it reminds me of dogs who start barking at clouds. It's just like (laughs) yelling at nothing. You know, there's nothing there. It's an argument against nothing. Now, with all that said, are there any books 
that you recommend for people or listeners or some of your fans to read that you found to be very formative, not just in your political thinking, but also just as a writer, creator, artist? Sure. Um, for comics, the number one book I recommend is uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Um, if you want to be making comics, that's as close to an essential book as there is. And one of the sequels, if you want to make long-form graphic novels, Making Comics by Scott McCloud is also very essential, in my opinion. For writing fiction, I mean, there's a ton of it. Uh, one book I found very useful was called um, Beginnings, Middles, and Endings. And I may be misremembering, but I believe her name is Nancy Cress, the author. Um, and that was very important for me just in trying to figure out the kind of questions I should be asking myself when I'm writing and thinking about things like, this is the opening of my story. What am I telling my readers here? What kind of story am I leading them to expect in the way I'm starting? Um, politically, I mean, who could say, just get obsessed. Um, you know, uh, get it, getting obsessed is useful. Getting into arguments for me is very useful. I mean, that's one of the reasons I argue with right-wingers a lot online is because it's a very fertile source of material for me. And so um, cultivate being someone who can have a discussion with someone you politically disagree with um, because that's a lot of material is available there. But that's just me. I think that different cartoonists have different methods and different ways of finding material. Did you ever happen to read uh, Howard Zinn's A People's History? I did. Um, I mean, I've read tons of, I mean, obviously, you want just a general background. So I've read Zinn. I've read Chomsky. Um, I kind of came into the left through feminism. I was a women's studies major in college. So I've read uh, a ton of feminists. Um, and yeah, I mean, you want to have a good kind of broad background in political thinking because you need that to be able to find something to say. Um, and so if you're going to be a left-wing cartoonist, that means you want to read a bunch of left-wing thought and be fluent in that. I imagine that right-wing cartoonists uh, need to go through the same thing reading, I don't know, William F. Buckley or whoever. <laughs> Um, Did you read Judith Butler then when you were- I read some Judith Butler. I read McKinnon. I read Dworkin. Um, I read Brown Miller. And I, I didn't agree with everything I read. I mean, one thing, if you dive into feminism, you discover that it is so far from being a Borg-like group mind. Uh, feminists, uh, especially in the 70s, even more than today, but also in the 80s, uh, saved their sharpest barbs for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so yeah, there's a lot to be found there and there's, um, let's see, Kimberly Crenshaw is another person who's thinking she's not as famous, um, um, as someone like McKinnon, but I think her thinking has been actually as or more influential over the years. And most of the ways that we think about intersectionality originate from her. Um, so a whole lot of people. So you were a woman's studies major? Yes. I, um, eventually I went to multiple colleges. I kept on dropping out. <laughs> the one I eventually graduated from was Portland state university and they had to design your own major option. So 
I did a major that was half women's studies and half economics. Okay. I essentially majored in what do I feel like reading about for four years. What I find interesting about that is you have that eclectic background and ended up majoring in mostly women's studies and this kind of uh, amalgam major that you created, but you only did one full formal year of art training in college. (laughs) That's true. Um, You know, you asked about discipline earlier and I had no discipline. And part of that is I had undiagnosed uh, ADHD. Um, But so, I mean, I just dropped out of SVA. Um, At at SVA, I was very engaged by Will Eisner's class and I attended that religiously. Um, But I was... I just did not put the effort into other classes. Um, And eventually uh, at Portland State University, for whatever reason, I managed to actually apply myself for four entire years in a row and graduated. Yeah, it's a very good university. The reason why I find it interesting is kind of a, a theme I've heard with a lot of people, which is that it's never like this linear path, right? Oh, yeah. It's often circuitous. And sometimes focusing on other things makes you better at the main thing. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're like a gen if you're a writer of any sort, not just comics, everything is going to get worked in. I mean, it's why the most important trait for a writer, I think, is just curiosity. Uh, you know, finding out about something you didn't know and diving in because the diamonds are there somewhere. Keep digging. So, for people who want to follow you and your work, where can they find you? Okay. So, um my cartoons, my political cartoons are all on patreon.com slash Barry. Um, so I, I got in early and got the good URL. <laughs> I was going to say, how'd you get that one? If you want to follow me on social media, I am on Facebook, Barry Barry, um, and on Twitter at Barry Deutsch. Twitter is by far the one I'm more active on. And finally, I have a blog. I won't give the URL, but if you Google Alas, a blog. You will find it. Um, and finally, finally, as far as as far as Hearville goes, it's available at Powell's. It's available at Amazon. Any place you can buy books, you can find Hearville. All right, I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. If you enjoy our show, tell your friends, write us a review, donate to our Patreon, and most importantly, subscribe and keep listening if you want more content like this one. 